I want to remind all of you that last time we were in Matthew, we saw Jesus talk about the absolute necessity of us honoring our marriage vows. Now today, in the passage we're covering, Jesus is going to tell his followers that we ought to be very circumspect in making any vows or oaths at all. And the reason why is because we as human beings so often fail to keep our promises and our vows. Now, we're going to take a couple of big takeaways from this passage this morning. Number one, we're going to learn that making oaths or vows unless absolutely necessary, like those in marriage, should not be undertaken. Why? Because it sets us up for failure. But we're also going to learn, in light of that, we ought to be people of our word. Jesus wants our yes to be yes, our no to be no, so that, yes, you and I are truth-tellers because we bear his name. Now, there's an equally important, I think, takeaway, though, from this passage, and that is you and I are going to learn, yes, we as humans often fail to keep our promises, but God never does. Because Jesus Christ is God, you can take it to the bank that he will always keep all of his promises. And so that's what we're going to be learning today. Now, I want to begin by talking about the world that Jesus lived in. I want you to think about in the day Jesus was living, the Israelites had quite a history with God and the promises that God had given them. And of course, God had kept all of the vows and promises that he ever made. But I want you to remember that the Israelites, they had made vows and promises to God, and that didn't go so well. And so I want you to think about these issues on the board with me. Number one, in Jesus' day, the Israelites deceived themselves into thinking that they could be promise keepers like God. And as I say that, I'm not claiming that this was every Israelite, nor am I claiming that somehow the Israelites are worse than us as Gentiles in this regard. I'm simply pointing out that they had also succumbed to human weakness and therefore self-deception and often failure. That's the point. Why? Because we as humans aren't the promise keepers God is. Number two, the Israelites knew the seriousness of violating one's oath. And I'll be coming to that Judges 11 passage that you see listed there. But these are passages that the Israelites would have had memorized. And I want you to think about this Numbers 30 verse 2. As I read it to you, they would have had this cold in their memory. It says this, Numbers 30, verse 2, Moses said, If a man vow, makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth, unquote. Now, from that, many Israelites, because they knew the seriousness of the vow, they end up taking oaths by swearing by something less than God to reduce their culpability. In other words, they would swear by heaven, they would swear by Jerusalem. They might swear by the hairs on their own head. And they thought that was all getting around the possible curse of using God's name. But what we're going to learn today is Jesus is going to show us that God owns it all. So whether you swear by Jerusalem or you swear by the earth, it all belongs to him. And by default, you're really swearing by God. And therefore, we just ought to be people who keep our word. Now, as we pick it up here in the first three verses of this section, Jesus is going to remind his people that even though, yes, we must honor our marriage vows, we ought to be very careful about making other vows in rash oaths. Notice what he says, Matthew 5, 33 through 35. He says, again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, 
but shall fulfill your vow to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Now, the first thing I want to point out in the text, notice you have an again, Pauline in the Greek, it's literally there. The again there is important because Jesus is showing that once again, he has to correct a misconception related not to a faulty law of Moses, but the faulty interpretation and application of the Israelites of the law of Moses. You see, what he's quoting from here in blue, where he says, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord, that originally came from Leviticus 19.12. And the concern was that human beings would swear by God's name some oath as to either what they would do or what they would say, And then they would somehow, in their human frailty and sinfulness, they would violate their oath and therefore run God's name through the mud of human sinfulness. And so that was the current. And so the idea behind this prohibition was the idea that, yes, we ought to be very circumspect about making any oaths at all. The Israelites didn't gather that. In fact, they should have gathered the idea that, yes, this law is not enticing people to make oaths, but rather to be very careful about making them begin again because of human inability and human sinfulness. And so I want you to see here that in verse 34, Jesus begins to say, no, you shouldn't make any oath at all. And then he starts citing the various items by which the Israelites would swear by so as to think they could get around swearing by God's name. Notice, first of all, he says, don't swear by heaven. Why? It's the throne of God. Also, he says, don't swear by what? The earth. Why? Because that's the footstool for God's feet. By the way, both of those ideas come from Isaiah 66, 1. Heaven is the throne room of God, and the earth is his footstool. Well, next, Jesus says also, don't swear by Jerusalem. Why? Well, as it says in Psalm 48, 2, it's the city of the great king. Now, what's the grand point that Jesus is making? Well, I think the grand point is he's reminding his followers that God owns it all. That God is the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things. So if you swear by something in his creation, you're really swearing by God. The great scholar in the book of Matthew, R.T. France, he said it this way. He said, "All all such swearing was not theological reverence, but theological superficiality, unquote. Dear ones, that's exactly right. This wasn't theological reverence. It was theological ignorance to think that the Israelites could violate their oaths simply because they swore by something other than God. God owns it all. Think of this example. I know I've used it in Sunday school. Many of you have probably heard the story where the atheist has the showdown with God. The atheist is going to show that he can create things just like God can. So he's going to do it by making a plant come alive. And so he starts gathering his dirt. And of course, what does God say? Well, get your own dirt, right? In other words, the atheist had nothing to begin with. Why? Because God owns it all. That's the point here. If God owns it all, don't think that you can swear by anything. You're ultimately going to be held accountable by God who hates liars. Now, as Jesus continues here in the last two verses of our section, he continues to prohibit oath-taking to be sure, but he also moves on to impress upon us how important it is it is for us to be people of our word why 
because we are representing Jesus Christ. Notice what he says, verses 36 to 37. He says, nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. Dear ones, notice here in verse 36, we should not even make an oath using our head or our hairs as collateral. Why? Because we belong to God. And it's God who providentially controls our lives and our well-being. And so who are you and I to use even ourselves for collateral? That's the idea. So now in verse 37, Jesus gives us the remedy. What are we to do instead of being rash oath makers? Well, notice he says we're to be people of our word. And that's what he means here when he says, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. He's simply saying, if you say you're going to do something, do it. Don't make some grandiose vow or oath that you're going to do something. Just be people of your word. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Now, as I've reflected upon this passage this past week, I'll tell you kind of a way that it really impacted me. And I thought back over the years of my own life, I've been a people pleaser for many years and I've always wanted to say yes to everything. And I don't know if a lot of you are like this, but what happens to me is I'll say, yeah, I can do that. And yes, I can do this. And pretty soon, if you're like me, you've got to get the car in for repairs and you have to get the kid off to baseball. And you mean well, but you don't end up keeping your word. That has to stop. Wisdom would tell us that, no, that's not part of the Christian life. We have to be people of our word. And so maybe busyness in your own life has to give way so that you're not running your schedule on such a thin line that if one thing goes wrong, you can't honor all of your promises. Many of you know that I love watching football. Years ago, one of my favorite commercials, I think it was in the 90s, there's a guy, if you can picture it, it's about, uh, the commercial is about a staffing agency to get professionals into various businesses. So picture the commercial, the guy's in a suit, he's behind a desk, the phone rings, he picks it up, he says, yep, I can do that, yep, I can do that, yep, I can do that, and he hangs up the phone, he looks at the camera, he says, how am I going to do that? I think that that's the way I've lived a lot of times. And perhaps the way, that's the way it is for you. So here's the idea. I want you to think about how God has called us to be faithful. He hasn't called us to be busy. My friend years ago, I was a flight instructor buddy. He astutely told me once, he said, you know, in the third world, the people have no watches, but they have time. We in America, we've got plenty of watches, but we have no time. And what he meant by that, I think it's very astute, is we have a lot of technology, don't we? But it doesn't mean that we have more time. We just try to cram more in. But we have to remember that the scriptures in this passage is telling us that we have to be faithful to what we say. Again, God is calling us not just to be busy, but to be faithful to our word. That's far more important. Okay, now, I want you to see here in verse 37, Jesus says anything else, if you start making these rash oaths and vows... It's going to set you up for disaster. Notice he says, just let your yes be yes, your no, no. Anything beyond these is what? Of evil. Literally in the Greek, you have a definite article there. So it's probably best rendered of the evil one. In other words, it's not godly to make vows and oaths. It is an opportunity for Satan to beat us over the head with a vow that we have broken or an oath that we don't keep. Think about who Satan is. According to Revelation 12, is he not the accuser of the brethren? He is. 
So why would you and I subject ourselves to an oath that God never made that we make, that we may not be able to keep, to give a big club for Satan to beat us over the head with when we fail to keep it? No, let's just be people of our word. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Jesus here is not telling us that you and I don't have to honor certain vows. We'll talk about this in our application, like marriage or telling the truth on the witness stand. What he's telling us is that we ought to be very circumspect about making vows and oaths in light of our human frailty and our sinfulness. And at the same time, we have to be people of our word, do what we say and mean what we say. That's what Jesus Christ is calling us here to in this passage. Now, from that, let me come to some applications. I have two for you here this morning. Number one, we must be people of our word, yet we must be careful not to make oaths that we often fail to keep. I think that's obvious from this text. Number two, we must know that God alone is the promise keeper who never fails. I think there's a great contrast in this passage. Yes, we may fail to keep our promises, but Christ never does. And that's the good news that we're going to end on in the gospel. Okay, so first of all, I want to help all of us in here build an aversion to making flippant oaths or vows. Perhaps you're not in the business of doing so, but this passage will reinforce the idea. Years ago, there was a Christian organization, many of you, many of you in here have probably heard of it, called the Promise Keepers. The Promise Keepers was started by a sports star, and I think he was very well-meaning for all that I know. I don't know the man personally, but I want you to think about organizations that make oaths, and I want you to think about the validity of that in light of what we've just learned from Jesus today in the Sermon on the Mount. And let me start by giving you the seven oaths that the promise keepers took. They, number one, they took an oath, and you can find this, by the way, on their website. Number one, they take an oath to honor God through worship, prayer, and learning God's word. Number two, they take an oath to build relationships with other men so that they can aid in helping them keep their oaths. Number three, they take an oath to practice spiritual, moral, ethical, and sexual purity. Number four, they take an oath to build strong families through love, protection, and biblical values. Number five, they take an oath to serve others and to pray for church and the nation. Number six, they make an oath to reach beyond racial, denominational, cultural, and generational boundaries. Number seven, they take an oath to obey the great commandment and the great commission. Now, all of these sound like great things that one should dedicate oneself to. But we have to ask ourselves in the light of human weakness, in the light of human sinfulness, and what Jesus taught here today in the Sermon on the Mount, is such oath-taking a good idea? I don't think it is. I think we are simply those who are to obey the Lord. Don't make grandiose oaths, just obey. Now, what I want to do is give you an example from the Old Testament where an oath was taken that was very foolish and, dare I say, even pagan. I'll make that case. Now, why am I going to cite from the Old Testament? Remember, according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, he said the things that had been written earlier in the Old Testament serve as instruction for us upon whom the end of the age has come. So yes, the Old Testament is not a binding legal code, but it is scripture for the people of God. So I'm going to use the case of Jephthah. Remember, remember the very foolish vow that Jephthah, the Israelite judge, made 
many, many years ago, I think should serve as an example for all of us. Now, if you don't remember the story of Jephthah, let me set the issue. Jephthah was a judge who was to help deliver the Israelites from the Ammonites. Now, the problem with Jephthah is that he was self-centered and he was all about promoting himself rather than truly honoring God. And you see that in various passages. Jephthah was a de facto judge, not because God per se chose him, but he was chosen by the people of Gilead. So I'm going to begin by citing Judges 11.29, where the Lord does use him to deliver the Israelites from the Ammonites. It says this, Judges 11.29, it says, Now the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, so that he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, then he passed through Mitzpah of Gilead, and from Mitzpah of Gilead he went on to the sons of Ammon. So yes, Jephthah, is, he is going to be one who delivers the Israelites from the Ammonites. But notice here, he begins it by giving a very rash vow, and I would claim pagan. Notice it says, it says in Judges eleven thirty through 31 Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give the sons of Ammon into my hand, then it shall be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Now, I want you to notice in this vow, you have both a protasis and an apotasis. The protasis is the if portion. This is what the Lord is to do. Notice Jephthah says, if you, that is God, will give the sons of Ammon to my hand. Meaning, will you... If you enable me to defeat them in battle, then what is Jephthah going to do? He's making a deal here. Well, then he is going to give whatever comes out of his house to greet him when he returns from battle as a burnt offering. And the way the traditional interpretation of this passage goes is that Jephthah is a believer, but the vow that he gives is wrong-headed, foolish, and rash. The idea is that he probably expected an animal to come out, not a human being from his family. The problem with that interpretation is more than likely what he knew to come out of his household to meet him or greet him wasn't going to be an animal, but rather it was going to be a human being, probably his only child. You see, Jephthah had a pagan background. In fact, it's a good case can be made that the God of his youth was not the God of Israel but the god of the Ammonites, Chemosh. Now, who was Chemosh? Chemosh was the same false god, or at least he had the same false doctrine that Molech did, where if you wanted favor with the false god, Molech or Chemosh, of the Ammonites or the Amorites, you had to sacrifice your child, whether it's your firstborn or your only child, and if you did that, then the deity would give you its favor. And so what I think is going on in light of Jephthah's self-calculation and self-elevation is he's engaging not just in a foolish vow, but a pagan one. Lord, you elevate me to the savior of the people of Gilead by smashing the Ammonites. You can even have my child as a burnt offering. He's no different than the pagans. Now, what ends up happening if you remember, is God does use him to spare the Israelites. He hands the Ammonites over to them. And yes, Jephthah, he does survive and thrive in battle. 
But when he returns, who ends up meeting him but his daughter? Notice it says, Judges 11, 34 through 35. When Jephthah, so at this point in the narrative, Jephthah has taken the Ammonites out, and now he's returning to home in Mitzpah. When Jephthah came to his house at Mitzpah, behold, his daughter was coming out to meet him with tambourines and with dancing. Now she was his one and only child. Beside her, he had no son or daughter. Stop there. What's interesting is later on in the narrative, she knows she's going to be sacrificed. And so she asked her father, Jephthah, if she could have time to go mourn her virginity. That's an indication that she probably was not yet of age to be married. So perhaps she was 12, 13 years old. She was very young. And I want you to think about this girl coming out to dance to meet her father, not because he's some war hero, but because she loves her dad. And so notice here in verse 35, you might think, well, maybe we have a a regenerate man who genuinely is sorrowful, but what did he expect to come and greet him? What did he expect? And isn't it the pagan who says, hey, I sacrifice to the God of Chemosh or this other God and I get favor? But notice in verse 35, it says, when he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low and you are among those who trouble me for I have given my word to the Lord and I cannot take it back. Brothers and sisters, the point here that I'd like you to make or like you to think about that I think is made in this text is that the vow that Jephthah made wasn't foolish. It certainly is, but it's more than that. It was pagan. It was a pagan vow. Let's think about it for just a moment. Did the God of Israel need Jephthah's vow and his promise in order that he would smite the Ammonites on behalf of Israel? Think about it from our perspective. You and I, in fact, Bob mentioned the throne of grace today in Hebrews 4.16, where we as believers can go to the throne of grace and find help in our time of need. Is it the throne of grace or is it the throne of let's make a deal? God, I do this, and I swear I'm going to do this, therefore you act on my behalf? Is that the God we serve? Or is it a God who graciously does for us according to his own power and according to his own riches? I think it's the latter. Dear ones, the point is that Jephthah made a vow to elevate himself, and making vows and oaths to elevate ourselves is not just foolish, it's pagan through and through. How many times in high school or in college did you hear people say, I swear to God that I'm going to, or I said, or I did, and as soon as the words came out of their mouth, you knew it was suspect. Why? Because they didn't really care about the name of the Lord and his reputation. They just wanted to elevate themselves in the eyes of men. That's exactly what Jephthah did. And it's exactly what vow-taking and oath-making often does. Dear ones, we don't need to make a deal with God. We need to trust God and his promises. He will act unilaterally, graciously, mercifully on our behalf. So what can we learn from this? Well, we learned last week, didn't Bob teach us so well in Romans chapter 8 that God does cause all things to work for the good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose, right? Now, what does that mean? That means that God is going to ensure through all the circumstances of life, through every molecule of the cosmos, 
that you as a believer are going to be conformed to the images of his son so that you will be a partaker of the resurrection and the glorious kingdom. Does that mean that we have to make a deal? Does that mean that we have to do it through some vow or manipulation of God? No. He's going to do that for us by his grace and his mercy. Dear ones, oath-taking isn't godly. I think we should see it as something to shy away from as being wrong-headed and even times pagan. Now, as I say that, you might be asking, well, wait a minute, Eric, what about the Jehovah Witnesses? They will not take an oath in the courtroom. Are they right in doing so? Here's what I would say. When it comes to marriage and when it comes to the courtroom, there are some vows or oaths that we must take. In fact, the Lord is the one who ordained marriage. He's the one who created the institution. And so there are some vows like marriage that, yes, if we don't want to burn with lust, we should enter into it, and we ought to be people that live up to our vows. And when we go into the courtroom and we say, I tell the truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God, we better do it. So there are some vows and some oaths that we have to be about to be in this world and that we ought to honor our word in them. But the point is, we are not to be the people like you saw in high school. I swear to God, I'm going to do this. And I swear to God, I'm going to do that. It's the frivolous and unnecessary pagan oath-taking and vow-making that the people of God should not enter into. Now, what's the remedy to all this? Well, Jesus taught us today that the remedy to vow-making and oath-taking is simply to be people of our word. And we see that not just in the Sermon on the Mount, but we see it elsewhere. For example, in James 5 verse 12. Now remember, James is the brother of Jesus. He came to faith after he saw his brother raised from the dead. He went from being an unbeliever, according to John chapter 7, to being a man who died for his brother because he knew he was God. He saw the resurrection and under the inspiration of the Spirit, listen to what James says. He says the same thing he learned from his brother. He says, But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Dear ones, think about this. We sometimes think, well, maybe this oath-taking and this vow-making, it's perhaps a subsidiary issue in God's eyes, but James says, no, above all, above all. In fact, notice in red where he says, do not swear, the term swear there, om nuo, is the term for making an oath. So he says, above all, my brethren, don't make an oath. Where do we learn that? From Christ on the Sermon on the Mount that we learn today in Matthew 5. Notice, we're not to make an oath either by heaven or by earth or any other thing. Where did we learn that? From Christ. Notice in blue, he says, but simply what? Let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under judgment. The idea is we're just going to be people who do what we say. We don't promise too much, but when we say we're going to do something, we just simply do it. We're going to be people of our word. And again, remember the people back in your college or high school days, the verbose one in the locker room who always said, I swear to God, I'm going to do this. How many times did they do it? If you and I are going to be that kind of people and take frivolous vows, remember, you and I bear the name of the Lord. And part of of violating the third commandment Bearing the Lord's name in vain means that you and I are not people of our word. 
So therefore, we ought to be people of our word and do what we say, because we're not just representing ourselves, but the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the remedy. Don't take vows. Just do what you say. Okay, now let's come to our second point. Now, this critique that I have here of oath-taking that we see in the Scriptures is, again, not detracting from our need to be faithful, but rather it is a stern warning against human inability and human sinfulness. And we have to remember, though, the good news is even when we fail, and human beings so often do, God is a promise keeper who never does. Now, let's ask ourselves the question, why is God alone the promise keeper? And one doctrine I want to teach you, and perhaps most of you know this already, is one of the reasons God can be the promise keeper is because he is a self-sufficient, non-contingent being. We call this the aseity of God, where he depends upon nothing outside of himself for his own existence. Now, why does that enable God to be the promise keeper where humans so often fail? Well, let me give you a hypothetical situation. Let's say I promise to pick someone at the airport 7 o'clock tomorrow. And by the way, I'm not going there, and there's, this is just hypothetical. But if I did, am I not con- is it not contingent upon my car working? or me having gas in my car, or the gas station having gas for my car if I'm out? You see, there's a lot of contingencies in my life because I am not a self-sufficient, non-contingent being. And so, yes, even though I may have good intentions, I may not be able to keep my promise, not because I don't want to, but because of my human frailty. God doesn't have that. God is all-powerful. He is omnipotent. He is the eternal being who needs nothing outside of himself, and therefore he can always deliver on what he promises. He is the God who is holy and therefore cannot lie. And so you see then, wrapped into the character of God, by necessity he is the promise keeper. Yes, he makes them, but he always keeps them. And at heart and at root of his nature, I think, of Being the promise keeper is his eternality. That's why it says in Psalm 90, verse 2, from everlasting to everlasting, it says, you are God. He is the God who doesn't need anything outside of himself. He'll always be there to honor his promises. And so this is why we see, for example, in Hebrews 6, 13 through 15, notice what the writer of Hebrews claims. He says, for when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself saying, I will surely bless you and surely will surely multiply you. And so having patiently waited, this is Abraham now, he obtained the promise. Now, the first thing I want to point out here is notice in blue, it says, since he could swear by no one greater. When people swear oaths or vows, they swear by something greater than themselves. So even if it's not God's name, it may be Jerusalem, it may be the earth, it's always going to be something perceived to be greater than you. But the idea is there's no one greater than God. So he swore the oath by himself. Now, how did that play out historically? Let's talk about that for just a moment. Go back to Genesis 15. I want you to remember that God made a promise to Abraham. I think it was probably the second person, the Trinity. I can't prove that to you. But Jesus does say in John 8, 56, that Abraham rejoiced to see his day. He saw it from afar and was glad, I think is the way it's stated. And that's right after that, in John 8, 58, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. He declared himself to be God. 
So perhaps it's the pre-incarnate Christ. It's God. It's Yahweh. He brings Abraham outside. He has him look at the stars. And he says, so as the stars are, so shall your seed be, your descendants. And remember in the very next verse in Genesis 15, 6, it said, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. But right after that, Abraham says, Lord, how do I know that I'm going to receive these promises? And so God has Abraham take these various animals. He cuts them in two because there's going to be a cutting of the covenant, karath bereath. And in the cutting of the covenant, remember, what would happen is in the ancient Near East, as the animals would be cut in two and the blood would pool, one representative from one tribe would walk the blood path and they would say, if we ever go against our word, may what happened to the animal happen to us. And then the other member of another tribe would walk the blood path and say, if we go against the terms of our covenant, our oath, may what happened to this animal happen to us. But remember, when God cut the covenant with Abraham, who alone walked the blood path? God did. Abraham's asleep. And so God is the one who made the unilateral promise. He was the one who was going to bring about the promises that he gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And as I say that, you might say, well, wait a minute, Eric. Here we have a citation from Genesis twenty-two seventeen. Certainly, Abraham was faithful. Because in Genesis 22, he's willing to sacrifice his son, his only son, Isaac. Yes, that's true. But what is it that prevented him from sacrificing his son? God giving the substitute at the very place, Mount Moriah, where 2,000 years later, Jesus Christ, who is God, again alone walked the blood path. Who helped him in the atonement? Who among us helped in being a substitutionary atonement to pay it off. No, Jesus alone did. He alone kept the promise and ratified all of the promises of God. God alone is the promise keeper. And that's the great news that you and I see today. We as humans so often fail, but God never does. And clearly in Scripture, Jesus Christ is declared and shown to be God. Jesus, as I said in John eight fifty eight, declares himself to be God. And notice here in this great, probably a hymn originally, 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13, it portrays Jesus as the great promise keeper. Notice Paul said, he says, it is a trustworthy statement. He says, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now, there's a couple issues that I want to focus on in the text. Notice in blue, it says, if we are faithless. The term faithless there comes from the verb apostuo. The, the verb apostuo is where we get our term for believing. So the, one of the questions we have to wrestle with is, does this mean to be without faith? Or does it mean to be unfaithful? The idea is, is it unbelieving or that we don't do what we say? Well, I think it's probably the idea of unfaithful as the Net Bible translates it. Why? Because Jesus is being depicted as faithful. It's not that Jesus is depicted as believing and you and I are unbelieving. What does Jesus have to believe in? Does he have to believe in himself? No. The idea is that he's faithful. So the idea then is that we are unfaithful. Even when we are unfaithful, it is saying that he remains faithful. 
Why? Because he's the promise keeper that we never were. Now, in this text, does it mean that God is faithful in Christ here? Is Christ faithful to judge or to save? In the pastoral epistles, the faithfulness of Christ is a faithfulness to save his people. And so we have a great promise here that even if we are unfaithful, Christ remains faithful to us because he can't deny himself. Didn't it say in Hebrews that because he could swear by no one greater, he swore the oath by himself? One day we're going to come to this in our studies in Matthew. We're going to come to Matthew 26, 35. And there, on the last night of Jesus Christ's earthly ministry, do you remember Jesus tells Peter that he is going to deny him that very night three times? But Peter makes a rash oath and says, All others may deny you, but I never will, even if I have to die with you. Well, how did that oath go for Peter? Not so good. In fact, even when a teenage girl said, Hey, I saw you with that Christ. I saw you with that man. Peter says, I don't even know who he is. And sure enough, he was unfaithful, denying Christ three times. But praise be to God, Jesus was faithful. In fact, you remember at the end of John, what does Jesus do for Peter? Three times Peter denied Christ. Three times Jesus said to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? He restored Peter. Because the beautiful news is that Peter's salvation was never dependent upon him keeping his promises per se. It was dependent upon Christ keeping his. John 10, 27 through 28, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice. I give to them eternal life. Notice they don't earn it. I give to them eternal life, and they shall never perish. And he goes on to say that no one can snatch them out of his hand. If any of you have ever received an email from Diane DeWay, I love what it says at the end. It says, held by his grip. That's good theology. It's not you and I entering the kingdom because we're holding on by the fingernails of our hands. We're going to enter the kingdom because Christ has us firm in his grip. He is the promise keeper even when we are not. That's the good news. And so perhaps there are some here today or some that are listening who don't know Jesus Christ who never come into contact with the only true promise keeper in the world. Today is your day. Today is the day of salvation. Now, as I give the gospel here in the ending, I like to begin with the bad news because I always tell people the good news only makes sense in light of the bad news. The bad news revealed in the scriptures, which is true, is that every single human being has rebelled against God in thought, word, and deed. In fact, in Romans 6, 23, we see that the wages of the sin is death. That's the outcome of rebellion against God. Not just separation of body and soul so that our body goes into the ground and our soul goes elsewhere, depending if you're a believer or unbeliever. But one day, it's an eternal separation from God in the lake of fire. That's what the Bible teaches, and I can't think of any worse news. But it's in light of that bad news that the good news of the gospel shines. The good news is that God sent forth his son as he promised. The son who existed as God and with God from all eternity. In history, he humbled himself. He became a man through the virgin birth. Truly God, truly man in one person so that he could live the perfect life that none of us could. 
so that he could be the promise keeper, the oath keeper, the vow keeper that none of us ever could. But Jesus didn't just live the perfect life. He went to a cross, and on that cross, he died a substitutionary death, Jesus the just, on behalf of us, the unjust, in order that we might be brought to God. Meaning, when Jesus died, he absorbed the full measure of God's wrath on behalf of those who would trust in him. The proof that Jesus accomplished this was seen by the fact that on the third day after his death, he was bodily raised from the dead. This resurrection proves all of his claims. When Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. We can believe it. Why? God raised him from the dead. This Jesus also ascended into the heavens. He is seated at the right hand of God from where he's coming again to bring a glorious kingdom for his people, but wrath and judgment upon his enemies. What must we do? What must we do to have salvation? Jesus doesn't just give, again, a helpful hint or a suggestion. He gives a command. The command that goes out to every person in the entire world forevermore is to repent and to believe the gospel. Repentance has to do with a turning, having a change of mind and turning from sin, self, the world, rebellion, idolatry, from vow-breaking, from heresy, from false religion, turning from those things and turning to God on his terms, which is faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Today, if you'll trust upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you have the assurance of the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life because it's all grounded in the word of the eternal promise keeper, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you that you are the promise keeper who even when we fail, never fails us. We thank you, Lord, for your promises. We thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to us. We do pray, Heavenly Father, that we would be people of our word, that we would be those who learn to let our yes be yes and our no be no. And perhaps there are some here who have always been well-meaning but need to loosen up the schedule and allow for the human frailties of life. Let us give us wisdom, Lord, how to be those who keep our word and worry about being faithful rather than simply busy. We pray, Heavenly Father, that in the weeks and months ahead, you would give us opportunity to proclaim your gospel to others, that you prepare hearts before us. I also pray for the baptism today. Rick Hoffman, Lord, that you would bless him that you'd allow this baptism to be a reminder to him and to all of us the great truth of being united to you through faith in your Son. We pray that you would bless our time and protect us as we go. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.